could be the charge to many of us in the evangelical church. There are good things. Our calling is to identify those good things and put what remains in order. And Titus had many formidable opponents. Look with me, if you would, at verses 10 through 13. What an indictment of this culture in Crete that, was, that Titus was facing. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, and Paul minces no words. Verse 11, they must be silenced. They're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. And then in verse 12, and this is, this is stinging what he's about to say here. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So that's Paul's diagnosis of the church that Titus is serving in. Could you imagine being on the pastoral search committee to bring in the next pastor for that group? So we, hear, we see here Paul's charge to Titus is to put what remains in order. The first chapter is intensely pastoral. It's intensely pastoral. There's much direction in chapter 1 for the church about how to select elders, and then what the teaching should include and how the church should operate. It's a very vital read for the evangelical church today. Let's begin at verse number one. Paul introduces himself here as Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now there are many ways that Paul introduces himself in his epistles. He introduced himself as apostle seven times, servant two times, and once as a prisoner. Here he uses two phrases, and we'll break those down. Number one, servant of God. The Greek word here for servant is the word doulos. Now that is the lowest form of servitude that the Greek language could represent. It's literally a slave. So Paul is saying, I am a slave to God. He's not just being humble. He's stating something that's a doctrinal and a theological truth. What he's saying is that you and I, let's apply it here, and him and Titus and everyone else, we are either slaves to sin or we're slaves to righteousness in Christ. There is no middle ground. It's either or. Look with me, if you would, at Titus chapter 3 in verse 3. Paul states this very clearly here. <clears throat> For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, and we were what? Slaves. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. So he's saying... In, he's saying a truism. I'm either a slave of sin or I'm a slave of Christ. And he, he highlights that in Romans ch chapter 6. And in Romans 6, at verse 16 through 18, Paul talks about 
we are slaves to the one we obey. Either of sin, ellipsis, and then down to verse 18, or we are slaves of righteousness. To illustrate that, my high school history teacher, when he was teaching us about the Emancipation Proclamation, here's what he told us. The Emancipation Proclamation ended legal slavery in the United States. But are there still slaves today? And the answer is absolutely yes, there are. And there are up until this day, 2023. There are slaves to all kinds of things. And I want to ask you today, as I've had to ask myself, are you a slave to anything? Are you enslaved by anything? Lust, addiction, materialism? Or have you been set free by the cross of Christ? There's an old saying that I believe is true. Sin always keeps us longer than we want to stay. And it always costs us more than we want to spend. And that is so true. So Paul begins with, I am a servant of God. <clears throat> Literally, he's a slave to God. And then he says, and I'm also an apostle of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about that phrase, apostle of Jesus Christ. There's two senses in which the word apostle could be used. One way is the lowercase a. The lowercase a is a sent one. And in, and in that regard, all of us here can be lowercase a apostles because we're all sent, according to the Great Commission, to do the work of the ministry. But there's another sense in which Paul uses the word apostle that is a capital A apostle. And a capital A apostle, that is his position and his title. So let me ask you this. Could any of us here today be capital A apostles? Could Pastor Darren be a capital A apostle? Could I be? The answer to that is no. If you're taking notes, please jot down Acts chapter 1, verse 22, where what is written are the requirements of an apostolic ministry, and the number one requirement is a person must have walked with Christ. So that's the capital A sense in which Paul is using the word apostle. And there's the lowercase a as well, which is something we can all do and we all should do. So verse 1 continues that Paul is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of God's elect. Now, I almost missed this the first couple of times I read this phrase. He, what he's doing here, he's doing with one particular goal in mind. This is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That means that what he does in the church is primarily for the benefit of those people in the body of Christ. Then, after being equipped, the saints go out and do the work of the ministry. Now, there are going to be times where unbelievers are in our midst, but we do not plan our service around that, those times. We plan our service in a way to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And I believe that's what he's saying there when he says, I'm doing this, or I'm telling you, Titus, do this for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Next question. 
Who are the elect? So, if we look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Paul talks a lot about who the elect are. So let me just read quickly Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, which will help us sort of get our arms around this. Verse, Ephesians 1, verse 4, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. Is election biblical? Yes. Is predestination biblical? Yes, it is. There was a pastor by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse who gave us this great illustration that I think helps us understand what Paul's talking about here. And what Pastor Barnhouse asked us to do is to consider the threshold of a door. And on the one side of the threshold of that door is written, whosoever will may enter. And then once we enter that threshold, we turn around and we read the other side of the door, and that says, chosen from the foundation of the world. So what's the point? The point is, we do not need to lay in bed at night wondering if we are one of the elect. If you have walked through that threshold, the Bible says you are one of the elect. This is for you, what we're talking about today. And I would also go so far as to say that if you're one of the elect, you will walk through that threshold of the door by God's grace. So what he's doing here is for the faith of God's elect. And then let's, let's keep on plugging away. So he does this for the faith of the sake of God's elect. And then look at the next phrase. For their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. If there's one thing that's taken a backseat in the evangelical church, it's this word knowledge. You know what's substituted in for knowledge at this point? Emotionalism, sentiment, feelings. And what Paul's saying here is, he's telling Timothy, I want you to really consider the knowledge of the faith of God's elect. And he's also saying here something very important. This is their knowledge of not just anything, but of the truth. So if you have a pen, I would circle in my Bible the truth, because it's very important for where we are in our day and age. Notice here, Paul did not say my truth. Can you imagine how silly that would be if the Apostle Paul said, I'm doing this all for the knowledge of the faith of God's elect of my truth. And yet that's what we have right now in our culture. We have lots of people talking about my truth, your truth, make sure you speak your truth. Here is an illustration. Several weeks ago, you may have read about this, the president of Harvard University. Now, keep in mind, Anyone know what the slogan is for Harvard University? It's in Latin, veritas, which means truth. The president of Harvard University, Harvard University, she was equivocating in her testimony before Congress on violence against Jewish students on campus. When the fallout occurred, she said something that's truly amazing. 
truly, truly amazing for someone at that high level of academia. She said, I failed to convey my truth. And I hope you catch that. There was an excellent opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal last week. Excellent opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal, and here's how they broke it down. As several commentators have observed, this phrase, my truth, is the tip of the epistemological iceberg. It stands for the proposition that truth doesn't exist and that the quest for truth is futile. Instead, there are multiple perspectives, each rooted in the position, experience, sentiments of the individuals or groups in similar positions. And then he said this. This is what the author of this piece in the Wall Street Journal said. He gave this apologetic for truth. So I would really like you to listen. Is everyone with me this morning? Are you awake? I know it's cold. <laughs> he said this. No one in the sciences or in engineering can take this argument seriously. If my truth is that water is not composed of hydrogen and oxygen, I would be laughed out of the classroom and I would literally not be allowed to teach my students. And that's so true, because truth is not relative. There is no my truth and your truth. There is the truth. Now contrast, and this is so important, contrast what we just talked about, this your truth, my truth sentiment, with what scripture says. Make a note in the margin of your, of your Bible, Proverbs 23, 23. That says, Buy the truth and sell it not. Buy the truth and sell it not. What is he saying there? He's saying that you need to carefully evaluate, carefully think about the things that we read, the things we hear, the things we watch, the things we listen to. And if it's true, we need to own it. We need to make it part of us. We need to live it. And we need to not back down from it and stop equivocating about it. Buy the truth and sell it. Not, it reminds us of what's said in Jude, where Jude said, we are to contend for the faith, which was once delivered for the saints. Contrast the world philosophy, your truth, my truth, with what Jesus said in John chapter 14. Hopefully you know this verse. Jesus said, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So here's the application point, and this is what I've had to ask myself. Are you equivocating with truth? Are you allowing the world philosophy to invade your mind and your heart and then afraid to speak truth? Have you bought into this subjective nature of truth? So verse 1 continues. Titus do this for the truth, but it's not just any truth. The truth which accords with godliness. Now this is one of the major themes of Titus. Paul is saying there is a connection between right belief and right living. You cannot separate the two. Look with me, if you would, at chapter 2, where Paul says, As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 
And then the result of that, if you read that whole chapter, if you get to verse 12, the result of teaching sound doctrine is that will train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What's he saying there? There's an unmistakable connection between right belief and right living, and we cannot separate them. So now let's move on to verse 2. So Paul's writing to Timothy, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with God in the verse 2, and that's one sentence, so I had to read the whole thing just to get context. But in verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So let's consider that, the God who never lies. This, friends, is where he's, what Paul's doing here is he's painting a stark contrast between God and the Cretan culture. So we've already read that in verse 12, what does it say about the Cretans? That they're always liars. So two application points here. Number one, what about you? What about me? Am I truthful? Are you truthful? Are you a person of your word? When you tell someone you're going to do something, do you do it? When you tell someone you're going to be somewhere, are you there? The second application point is, this God who never lies, this is a great encouragement to us. No matter what you're going through this morning, no matter what I'm going through, He is faithful. His promises are sure. You can count on Him. And friends, for those reasons, we should cling so tightly to God's Word as people who have nowhere else to turn. And you know why? Because we really don't have anywhere else to turn. We only think we do. You know that? We think we've got all these other answers and solutions, but we've got nowhere else to really, tur really turn. So let's continue in verse 2. This is all in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now that took a little bit of thought. And to be honest, there were a bunch of commentaries that skipped over that phrase because it wasn't abundantly clear. And I believe what he's getting at there is found in Romans 16, verses 25 and 26, which is that the gospel was a mystery hidden for the ages and prophesied by the prophets. And it was only revealed in the person of Christ and then in the gospels and in the epistles. That's what he's talking about there. These are promises before the ages began that we actually get to read about and they actually got to live through. Verse 3. God at the proper time manifested his word. How? Underline this. Through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. The Greek word here for preaching is kerygma. And you know what that means? That means to herald, to proclaim, to announce, and to declare truth with seriousness and gravity, with passion and power. What is preaching? The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers, he said, preaching is theology on fire. And um, Howard Hendricks, one time said, 
set yourself on fire and people will come to watch you burn. That's preaching in the pulpit and it's sorely missing in our country and in the world. It's the same reference for what John the Baptist did in Matthew chapter 3. He went about proclaiming repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same word in Luke 4 verse 18 and 19 where Jesus picked up the scroll of Isaiah in the temple and he read the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover sight to the blind. To the blind. That's the word preaching and that's what Paul's telling Titus to focus on in this church in Crete. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul said, we preach Christ crucified, and that is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So do we preach it even if people don't believe it in our community? The answer is yes, we do. Yes, we do. Pastor Alistair Begg noted the following about biblical preaching. He said, Biblical preaching is in the shadows in much of the church because much of the church does not believe in it. And then he states this, which should be convicting to anyone who stands in the sacred desk to declare God's word. We're not up here to give talks. Preachers stand in the pulpit to read, proclaim, and apply the word of God. The authority that a pastor or a preacher has is a derived authority. It's not from my position or my education or anything else. It's derived from the authority that's found in God's word. So Pastor Alistair Begg correctly notes, our responsibility is to proclaim and apply that word. Not my ideas, not my philosophies, but the word of God. And then Alistair Begg came up with this little list of substitutes for biblical preaching. And I thought this was good, so I wanted to share these. Four substitutes that are passing right now in the church for biblical preaching. Number one, the motivational speaker. And I know you guys have probably seen all this. You turn on television and you watch TV preachers, you're going to see this. But the, the motivational speaker is someone that leaves the sheep stirred, but unaffected, still searching for proper nourishment for their souls. Number two, there's the entertainer. This is the person who has great ability to capture the imagination and the attention of the audience through verbal and theatrical natural talent and abilities which are many times mistaken for the power of the Holy Spirit. You hear people say, oh, that guy has such an anointing. And what does he have? He's got the ability to entertain a crowd and keep their attention. Number three, the life coach. I'm going to give you three reasons today how you can be successful in your life. You have a pen and paper in your hand? Fill in the blanks here. That's the life coach. Now, are there things wrong with that? Not necessarily in a different setting. And number four, the lecturer. And the lecturer is someone who really does dive deep into the word, but there's no application. And it's a very dry uh, academic approach to the study of the Word. That might be really appropriate for a Bible study. Begg concludes, and this is really the sad part of it, 
Many congregations have been brought up on this, and they have no idea that they're sitting under an unbiblical ministry. And I would add, they don't know what they're missing, because they've never really seen biblical preaching. The point is, as a preacher, once you remove the ancient landmark, which is the sacred text, scripture, all kinds of things come in. All kinds of things come in. And we never want to look at, at something and say, the reason we do it is because it works. But I want to give you an illustration of how biblical preaching actually does work. If you study the great revivals of the past, if you look at the Scottish revival, that began with preaching. It was George Whitfield who circled the countryside preaching. If you look at the Great Awakening, how did that begin? It was preaching. It was Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, John Wesley, circling the countryside, preaching. And it just so happens that it's exactly what Paul told Titus, that at the proper time, God's word is manifested through preaching. Wouldn't you love to see revival break out, not only here in this church, but in our families, and in our communities, in this country, and in the world. I believe God has given us the prescription for what ails us. And it's right here in these pastoral epistles. In conclusion, I'm not sure exactly how this might apply to you, how the Holy Spirit may have used these words to convict your mind. Hopefully, it's given you something to think through today. I'm not sure how this applies to Grace Covenant Church, and I'm not sure how this might apply to the pastoral search committee, or to the elders, or to you individually in your families. But I just pray that the Holy Spirit will take these words and use them in our lives so that we could change our thinking, which will lead to changed action in the church. So thank you all very much for your attention this morning. I so much appreciated the opportunity to be with you, and let me close this in prayer, and then we'll have a final song. So God, thank you so much for your word, which is very clear, and I pray that you would help us, Lord, to apply this to our lives, that the Holy Spirit would drive home in our hearts the things of your word that are true, and help us to apply those, and to own those. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.